0: Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the letter of 2 John. Um, we are going to continue. We just finished 1 John, um, and we are going to just continue through Second and 3 John uh, and finish these letters out. Uh, I normally do, when I preach a book, uh, I do an introductory message, and then I do... Um, a uh, preach through the book, and then I do a concluding message, and given the fact that 2 John is as short as it is, uh, we're going to do all that just mixed together. Uh, And so, uh, Lord willing, my plan right now is to preach through 2 uh, John in two messages, Um, and so we'll hit the first six verses today, um, and then the rest of it, Lord willing, next week, and I'll kind of be including some of the background information and things as we go, uh, with with uh, with how short um, these uh, these letters are. Also, I, just for reference here, so you're not confused as to what's going on, I am preaching from uh, the LSB today, um, the Legacy Standard Bible. Um, not changing anything. Uh, long-term, but I just wanted to preach from it. I don't really have any specific reason <laughs> other than the fact that um, we don't have... Uh, I've been preaching from the ESV, as you know, and love the ESV. Uh, great translation. And But also, there are other good translations out there, translations that stick to the meaning of the text. For those of you who don't know, the LSB uh, is a translation that really is based in large part on the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. So if you have a NASB with you, um, you'll see a lot of similarities with that. Um, Some folks over at Master's Seminary took the NASB and uh, made uh, some changes and things to it, and so we have the LSB. I think it's a really great translation, very uh, uh, straightforward to the text. Uh, You'll notice a few things that are different in it. Um, One of the things that might catch you off guard a little bit is that they capitalize any quotations from the Old Testament— and so you'll see some sections where, um, uh, not in Second John, but in some other verses I'll bring up today where there's a bunch of all capital letters. It's not, them like yelling at you uh, through that. It's just simply a quotation from uh, the Old Testament. So to kind of give you a, a heads up on that. So uh, I think that's all I have introductory wise. Let's go ahead and start uh, with a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you that you are a faithful God and that you're kind to us. We pray that you might help us to understand the passage in front of us, that we would submit to it, that you'd give to us um, joy from it, and that you'd just encourage us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, Pilate asks Jesus a question, and it is a question that echoes down really through the ages. Uh To set up this question, you know that Jesus uh, said to Pilate that the reason that he came into the world was that he was going to bear witness to the truth. And Jesus then says to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And that is a way of saying that those that the Lord has chosen, the, the Lord's children they know the voice of their shepherd. They, they recognize the voice of their shepherd. And Pilate responds to this statement by Jesus with a question, and he simply asks the question what is truth? With the rise of a worldview and philosophy that has been referred to as postmodernism. And with the rise of something called moral relativism, many people are asking this same question today. We can't seem to shake off this question. What is truth? Um, Many people want to know what truth is. And in fact, many people today don't believe that there is any such thing as truth. Truth is relative to the individual. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth, and let's just move on with our lives. An article from the New York Times back in 2015, entitled, Why Our Children Don't Think There Are Moral Facts, says the following. Philosophy professors with whom I have spoken suggest that an overwhelming majority of college freshmen in their classrooms view moral claims as mere opinions that are not true or are true only relative to a culture. That is to say that uh, a large portion of people going into college now, of course coming out of it, but going into it even, are viewing uh, no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is relative to a person or to a culture, Postmodernism, of course, is a disease in our country, and by all external ex- uh, appearances, it seems that the case may be terminal, but of course, we know there's hope with the Lord. It's a poison that is present on practically every college campus in the country, and of course, it has turned more children against their parents than can be counted, and of course, countless other things that it's done. And while uh, it is true that uh, you should be hesitant to believe everything you read on Wikipedia, I did find a definition helpful on Wikipedia, and so I'm going to give that to you. Wikipedia defines postmodernism this way, postmodernists are skeptical of explanations which claim to be valid for all groups, cultures, traditions, or races, and instead focuses on the relative truths of each person. It considers reality to be a mental construct Claims to objective fact are dismissed as naive realism. So basically, postmodernism says you cannot claim that something that is true for this culture, for Americans, is true for Africans or Australians or whatever the case might be. They would say that there is no overarching universal truth. What's true here might be different here, might be different here, might be different here. Initially, postmodernism gained traction in the soft sciences and in art and literature. And it's very popular, of course, to allow the reader to bring meaning to a text. Postmodern thought will encourage readers to ask the question, what does this book mean to you? We saw this a few weeks ago, Uh, explored that a little bit. But postmodernism, of course, has reached its ugly tentacles further into society and culture. And even, surprisingly, some of the hard sciences are being impacted. According to the Equitable Math Toolkit, uh, quote, upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers uh, perpetuate objectivity as well as fear of open conflict, end quote. Whether intended or not, this certainly, in a math curriculum, opens up the door to make the suggestion that two plus two equals B.K. Chesterton wrote, fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four. Swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in summer. Is this not a prophecy that has come true in our culture today? And that is where we are today in culture. Some of the most basic facts of reality, things that we thought never would be questioned, are being questioned, not just by people in fringe groups, but people in the mainstream, people in the mainstream are asking these kinds of questions. Can we really believe that there is such thing as absolute truth? And so if there ever was a question that we needed a firm answer to today, it is the question, what is truth? The question has not left us. Now, fortunately, We still hang on to some remnants of truth in society. All is not lost, although it seems pretty hopeless right now. One apologist keenly observed that no one employs postmodern hermeneutics in reading the instructions on a medicine bottle. Of course, that's true enough. I've heard plenty of people come to the Bible and say, what does this mean to you? I've never heard anyone read instructions on a medicine bottle and say, what does this mean to you and live to tell about it, okay? You look at that and you come to that and you know that you don't bring truth to those instructions. Those instructions have truth that you submit to. And so there are some remnants of reason left in culture, albeit small. There are some remnants left. In any event, the reason that we are going to begin the letter of 2 John this way is because one of the most significant themes in this short little letter is the theme of truth. John talks about this topic over and over and over again in these just 13 short verses. Both 2 John and 3 John, in fact, are largely about truth. In 2 John, the word truth, or in Greek, aletheia, appears five times. And again, while that uh, doesn't sound like much, keep in mind that there's only 13 verses in this short little letter. He continues to talk about it over and over again. Third John, the word shows up six times. Um, so these are two incredibly short, in fact, the shortest letters you have in the New Testament And they are both dense with references to the truth. And so we're just going to look at this in two sections today. We're again looking at the first six verses out of 13. Verses 1 through 3 is John's introduction. Uh, This, by the way, is written uh, just down the line uh, the same way that uh, any other first century letter is written. Follows the same format. He has an introduction. We're going to look at the first part of the body of this letter, which is love and truth in verses four through six, and then, Lord willing, next time uh, we'll look at the rest of them. But uh, since it is short enough, we are actually going to read the entire letter today, um, even though we're just looking at the first six verses. The second letter of John, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we received commandment from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, But the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. See to yourselves that you do not lose what we accomplish, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Commentators have speculated over the introduction to Second John uh, for some time. And let's just go back and look at the first verse again here. He says, "...the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth." The big question that uh, a lot of people ask when they come to this letter is, who is the lady? Um, And there are two main views that we're going to look at. There are others, but there's two main ones. And the one view is that the lady is an actual real woman, uh, an individual person that John is writing to. And the other view is that the word lady is more metaphorical, and he's actually writing to a church. And he's just metaphorically calling the church the lady, and therefore the children would either be the members of that church or perhaps even church plants uh, that this church has has planted. Um, MacArthur, his view is that this is an actual woman um, and that what was going on is that this lady actually had received false teachers into her house Uh, She was showing them hospitality. She had actually brought these people into her house, and that John was writing to this lady to essentially rebuke her for this and say, stop bringing false teachers into your home. They're not bringing the truth, and so you need to not welcome them, don't even greet them, because when you do that, you are actually participating in the spread of this false doctrine. I would say, uh, and and my view is, I honestly am not really committed either way. Um, It really does not change anything about the letter, regardless of what your view is. He still says we need to walk in truth. He still says um, that we need to love one another. Uh, He still says to obey God's commandments. And whether he was specifically writing to an individual or whether he was writing to a church at large really doesn't change anything, and so I really kind of am uncommitted either way on that particular uh, view. Regardless of which view you take, he exhorts us, walk in truth, love one another, don't receive false teachers in your home, and so nothing really changes uh, depending on which which view you take there. So that being said, some of that to the side now, Uh, let's look at the verse here. John refers to himself as the elder in verse 1. He writes, not just to the lady, but to the, what lady? The elect lady. This word, elect, means chosen, or of course, elect. And it is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to the doctrine of election. This word, elect, shows up 22 times in the New Testament. We see this in Matthew 22. It's translated as chosen. For many are called, but few are elect, or few are chosen. We read also this same word is used in Matthew 24, 31. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, or his chosen, from the four winds. Now, whether John is writing to a lady or to a church church, In either case, she is God's chosen, whether God has, whether John is referring to this individual lady as one of God's individual elect, God's individual chosen, or whether he is referring to the church as a whole as God's chosen, God's elect. In either case, um, he brings up this doctrine of election. God has chosen to set his love on her. Having addressed this lady then as the elect lady, John says that he loves her in truth. This is the first reference to our word truth or to Aletheia in this letter. He also says, if you'll notice here in verse 1, that not only does he love her in truth, but who else loves her? All the other people who love truth love her as well. In other words, what John is referring to here is that there is an entire community of people who are centered around loving truth. And that community of people, including this lady, including John himself, and including these other people who love the truth, this community of people has unity because of their shared commitment to the truth. And they all love one another. There's a a mutual love that's going on here. These people, of course, that love the truth are Christians. John is referring to these Christians that love one another in truth. They know the truth of the gospel, they believe in absolute truth. They are not making the claim that truth is relative, that whatever you believe is fine and whatever you believe is fine. They actually are saying there is something outside of me that is a universal, unchanging standard of truth. And I am committed to that, and because you are also committed to that standard, we love one another, and we have fellowship and unity together. That's what John is writing about here in this introduction. And so the simple takeaway early on in this letter already is, that, is this, Christians are united by their shared commitment to truth. This is foundational. It's, it's, it's not believed today in society, but it is foundational. Uh, the mantra today, even among so-called pastors, is that doctrine divides. Um, a pastor told me one time that the local ministerial group does not talk about doctrine or theology because it just divides. And so we're not going to talk about those kinds of things. Likewise, you probably have heard many people use the statement that I think is not helpful, and that is, no creed but Christ. Okay, what Christ are we talking about, right? (laughs) Um, You know, of course, I've, I've shared this statement before. MacArthur was confronted with this idea about doctrine dividing, and he responded by saying, yes, doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. And so there is... This fact that doctrine does divide. That's not a bad thing, actually, because we want to know what the difference between the truth is and error. Um, And even though our culture and broader evangelicalism today has romantic thoughts about how great it is to set all of our beliefs and convictions to the side. The reality is that this is neither wise nor possible. We are not called to set everything to the side, to set the truth aside for anything. It is curious to me that modern calls to ethical and moral diversity, such as the call to coexist, seek to build unity on the foundation of disunity. That's what this is really doing. We will find... our you realize that's what's going on. The, the calls to, the culture's calls to coexist is saying, let's find unity in our disunity. That's essentially what's going on here, uh, which is actually nonsensical. How can we be united by the very thing that divides us? <laughs> Scripture says repeatedly that unity must be built on agreement, on shared biblical values. And I'm going to give to you some verses. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind. You're supposed to think like one another. You're supposed to have the same kinds of thoughts about the truth. Second Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brothers, rejoice, be restored, be comforted, be like-minded. We are all supposed to be like-minded. Philippians two in verse two, fulfill my joy that you think the same way. First Peter three eight. Now to sum up, all of you, be like-minded. We are to be of the same mind. We are to be united in our thinking. We are to process reality, the world, ethics, morals, politics, values, family, in the same way as a local church. We're to think about this in the same way. Uh, Again, to rehash all these words that we just put all in one place. He says that you all agree, same mind, be like-minded, think the same way, be like-minded. Now, there are times where I wonder whether our present understanding, broader evangelicalism, our present understanding of the Christian conscience has gone too far and gone off into a ditch. And let me explain what I mean by this. Probably if we went around the room and surveyed everyone, a significant number of you, would tell stories of what it's like to live in a church where um, nothing is a conscience issue. Right? There's no such thing as a conscience issue and everything down to the last iota is dictated to you and there's just no room for a tertiary issue, or a third-tier issue. It's just all, this is what it is down the line. And that is something that uh, is very oppressive in a lot of ways. The answer to that, though, I I, I just want to, and we actually looked at this in our study on the whole Christ with legalism and antinomianism. The answer to this is not to make everything a conscience issue. And and I, I think we tend to, Aren't we curious creatures? We tend to just live in extremes, right? <laughs> Nothing's a conscience issue. Everything's a conscience issue. <laughs> um, we need to let the Bible inform us in these matters. And so, I would just caution us to say that perhaps, maybe, if you came from that type of a background where nothing was a conscience issue and it was a very legalistic, um, demanding context, a very suffocating and stifling context. I just want to encourage you that the answer now is not that everything is a conscience issue and everyone can just do whatever they want to do. That's called the antinomianism, and that's bad too. Okay. Um, what, what I'm saying with all of this is that there are some segments in our culture, and I want to caution us about this, and that is that our that would suggest to us that our unity is to be built on our disunity. And we don't have to agree on anything at all. And we can just be all over the map. Scripture points us to the fact that our church is supposed to be like-minded. We're supposed to think the same way about things. And yes, I understand there are conscience issues. There are third-tier issues, I would call them. And there are going to be things like that where we may have disagreements. But down the line, we need to check the box on all of these big, major, core First tier, and I would even say, second tier issues of we're like-minded in this way. Um, and as a as a church, I implore you all to agree with one another, to be of the same mind. That is to where that's where our unity is to be found, and that is where this unity is found here in Second John. Again, going back to this first verse, the elder to the elect lady in her children. Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. There, this is a community of people who are committed to their shared um, their shared commitment to the truth. They're committed to the truth, they love the truth, they know the truth, and because of that, they have unity and love for one another. Um Stott says on this point, we shall never increase the love which exists between us by diminishing the truth which we hold in common. I mean, we find greater unity as we increase in our knowledge of the truth with one another. And so John continues this theme in verse two, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Okay, so again, he references truth. We love each other for the sake of the truth now. Um, I, I literally heard an ad yesterday that started off, they were selling a product, and it was, it started off by saying, whatever the holidays mean to you, da 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 da, da, da buy our product, essentially is what it was. Um, and, and I thought, like, this is something that you can't escape from. I mean, do you see the little little tiny smidgen of postmodernism thrown in there? A little bit of relativism thrown in there? Whatever it means to you, and by the way, we don't care what it means to you, because to each his own, and everyone can have their own interpretation and their own meaning by our product, right? Um, Postmodernism. In the holidays, not postmodernism and buy our product. <laughs> A little bit of inconsistency there, but that's the way that our culture thinks through these things: is they think relativism. Um, this kind of thing surrounds us. It's the air that we breathe. It's the idea that truth is irrelevant. Whatever floats your boat. Um, this is what we see in the days of the judges. Right? Every man did what what was right in his own eyes. And we see that today. John is writing against this because he's saying that the truth is what unites us. Not moral relativism, but the truth. In verse one, he says that he loves this lady in the truth. He says that everyone else who knows the truth also loves this lady. And then he says in verse two that he loves her for the sake of the truth. It's like almost redundant. He just keeps saying truth, 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 truth over and over and over and over again. It must be stated that Christians love the truth. And the culture that we live in has persuaded many Christians to despise the truth or at least view the truth as secondary to other considerations. And you can feel that in the culture around you, that truth is at best secondary. Scripture. Puts truth at the center of our unity. Proverbs twenty three, twenty three: 23, buy truth and do not sell it. Cling to truth. In verse 3, we read, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in, here it is again, truth and love. John, in typical fashion of first century letters, sends his greeting to this lady. He sends, of course, grace, mercy, peace. He acknowledges some things about the Lord. God is the Father, Christ is the Son, some of these core doctrines. And then again, he uses the word aletheia, or the word truth. And again, this theme, as I mentioned at the beginning, is big because he brings it up over and over and over and over again. And this time... He says, in truth and love, which hints something to us that we saw over and over and over again in the letter of First John, and that is what? Truth and love are compatible with one another. They are not at odds with one another. Again, this is a, a subtle teaching of our culture that truth and love tend to be in this cosmic battle with one another. And so if I had to go one way or the other, I'm going to default to love and not to truth. That's kind of how our society thinks uh, about this. uh, This is important to note because the modern way of thinking is to pit love and truth against one another so that love is more important to truth. After all, when your wife asks you the question, does this dress make me look fat, you err on the side of love rather than truth. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Now take that and apply that in a more significant way. Right? Okay, that's just a dumb little thing. But apply this. What what about the transgender chaos going on in society right now? What are we told? To err on the side of love, which is not defined by Scripture, but by the world, instead of truth. In fact, many Christians are making this very claim. They will say, yes, we know that this is wrong. We know that this is sin, but let's just love them and not give them truth. You see how love and truth are pitted against one another as if we could never live out a life so that they are going together. Can you take someone who is embracing the modern spirit of the age And can you give them both truth and love? You can. And this is what we're called to do as Christians. I don't soften the truth for the sake of love, but I also don't discard truth. I don't, and and I don't have to be a jerk about it either. I can love someone and I can give them the truth at the same time. Um, We see this phrase, truth and love, in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, right? Um, We are to grow up in all aspects into him who's the head that is Christ. This really is going to introduce to us a theme now in this letter of truth and love. And this marks the transition between his introduction to the letter and the letter itself, beginning in verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we received commandment from the Father. Now, if the lady is a church, then what he is saying is, I'm pleased to discover that some of your church members or some of your church plants are Walking in the truth. If the lady is an individual, then he is rejoicing to find some of her actual biological offspring walking in the truth. Now, one technical note here is that just because we see the word some does not mean that he's saying the other ones were not walking in truth. Um it, it's kind of like he's saying, you know, hey, I was out the other day and I ran into some of your children. And I was pleased to find out that they're walking in the truth. Um, So it could be that some were not, but it's not clear enough from here to to determine that. He simply is acknowledging that he has um, run into some of this lady's children, and he's pleased to discover that they are walking in truth. Um, Parallel statement in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He does not say that he has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in love, as noble as that is. Rather, he puts walking in truth as the height of his joy. As a parent, there is nothing that I want to hear more than to hear that my children are walking in truth. What he he puts at the top of this. Um, and, 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 and parents can relate to this because it's like two extremes. It's like the greatest joy is that my children are walking in truth. And the greatest heartbreak is that my children are not walking in the truth. It's like, it's just, it, it forms like these bookends of the, the greatest happiness and the greatest heartbreak of my life as a parent. And, and that's what John says in, in, in third John and in second John here. He's simply saying that he rejoices to hear that some are walking uh, in, uh, in, in the truth. To do this, to walk in truth, is to live your life. And by the way, actually, one of the reasons why I think that love is not mentioned here in truth is, is because if you are walking in truth, then you will walk in love. Okay? Um, it, it's, it's not always the other way around as our culture tells us, but actually we're going to get to that a little bit later next week in 2 John. Look down, by the way, at um, verse 9. Anyone who goes too far, what he's saying is that there's such a thing as love that's gotten off the rails, that's not constrained by truth. And so what he's encouraging us to do is to walk in truth, because if you're walking in truth, then you will love properly and you will do all these other things properly. Um, walking in truth is similar to what we read in 1 John 1.7. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The idea of walking in the truth or walking in the light is, is what? Actually practicing what you say you believe. So that your mouth and your feet... Are doing the same thing right I mean there I'm, I'm saying this but I'm also going in that direction okay the opposite of that is what we call a hypocrite okay someone who goes in two different directions you act you speak as if you believe one thing and you act as if you believe something different to walk in the truth, is to act out the Christian faith in the real world. It is not to believe in Christianity merely in theory, but in practice. We are to be, in the words of James, what? Doers of the word and not hearers only. Now with this being said, John wants to communicate also to this lady a command and he gives this in verse 5. He says, now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one which we'd ha- we've had from the beginning that we love one another. Okay, two themes, truth and love. They go together. They're not pitted against one another. He can call for them to be unified in truth. He can call for them to exercise love Both of these things complement one another. That's where John is going with this. This theme is very similar to what we've already seen in 1 John. And we also see this theme in the Gospel of John where Jesus says something very similar. This commandment is the one that's not new. The one that we've had from the beginning is that we love one another. John is pushing the truth, the truth, the truth. But then he brings up love as well. And he wants them to persist in Christian love for one another. That's what he's saying to this lady. He's essentially saying, persist in loving one another. Continue in this. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to persist in love for one another? And I'm glad that you asked, because John answers this question, and he answers this in verse 6. <clears throat> this is love. Okay, this is kind of the part where you kind of perk up, and you say, oh, John's giving us a definition. He's going to tell us what the word love means. Okay? Okay. And you will find that when you read verse 6, that it is not going to be one of the myriads of definitions that the world is going to give us today about love, okay? It is actually going to be categorically different from anything that you will read in the world today. This is love. What could he say? Well, what does he say? That we walk according to his commandments. Love is obedience to the Lord. That's what he gives as the definition here. This is love that we walk. Not really that complicated. This definition of love shows up elsewhere in the Bible. Jesus says in John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. See how this friendship or this love exists with Uh, obedience. Uh, Verse 10 of, of John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, the connection between commandment keeping and love. Love is compatible with commandment keeping. We saw this theme again. This is one of the reasons why we know this letter was written by John, because it's like he almost is just repeating everything that he just said in First John, okay? So if you hear me today and you sound, this is repetitive of what John's been saying the last several weeks, I'm just telling you what he's saying now, okay? And it's the same thing that he's been saying in the letter of 1 John. And we said that that Sinclair Ferguson referenced this by saying that love and law are in-laws, that they're related to one another, okay? Um, Love and law go together. The commandment is to walk in truth and love. This is love, that you walk. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but I want to refer to something a little bit ahead, and I've already referred to it once. This is going to become especially important later on in this letter because what John is going to do is he is going to warn her very sternly not to receive false teachers in her home. In fact, not even to give them a greeting at all. Do not welcome them in your home. Do not show them hospitality. Do not give them a greeting. If you do any of those things and you are participating in propagating false teaching. And in verse 9, he says, it is possible for someone to go too far. Again, I referenced that already. Look back at it again, verse 9. We're going to see this, Lord willing, next week. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have gone. Second John is teaching us that we are to let truth govern love, not love govern truth. So, the way that you look at this is you say. I wonder what true love looks what does love look like I have to go find truth to get the answer to that question and that's contained where here okay You don't say this. I wonder what truth looks like. Let me go out into the world and look at all the love out there. And then I will come up with a definition of truth based on that. No, you start with Scripture. You start with the truth. And you say, God defines love this way. You look at this passage, for example... This is love that we walk. You look at 1 Corinthians 13 and you say, What does love look like? And you begin to say, My truth constrains love, it defines love, it gives it meaning. This is how I know what I am to do, and this is how I know what is loving and what is not loving, because there are things that our world thinks is love and is not. Okay? If there is someone who is blind and they are on railroad tracks and there's a train coming, okay, um, it's loving to rescue them off of that. A friend told me a uh, a story one time of um, uh, a man who was an electrician who dealt with like high voltage situations and... um, whenever he would go to a job, he would have a very long two-by-four with him. And the guy asked him, what is the reason that you carry this two-by-four on every job site? And he says, well, if my partner gets stuck to this, I have to have a way to get this guy off of the electric line kind of a thing. And um, if I'm ever latched on (laughs) to some uh, electricity, hit me with a two by four, please. <laughs> like, whatever you have to do to get me off of that thing. That's loving, right? If someone's facing a, a trains coming at them, it is loving to tackle that person, even though it may hurt in that moment. Okay? It is loving to give people the gospel and to tell them that they are sinners that are bound to go to hell for all of eternity and that they need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Savior. That is love. Is it going to sting? Probably. Is it going to hurt? Yeah. Is is it going to hurt to tell someone you can't live in this lifestyle because that is an affront to a holy God? Absolutely, that is the most loving thing you can do for that person. Again, the world says that that's hate. Okay? That is why we're saying that truth must govern love. How do I know what love is? You don't go to Oprah or to whatever else is going on out there today. You go to the Word of God, okay? And you say, this is what the definition of love is. That's where I go to find this. All right, so where do we go from uh, from here? The letter of 2 John is a letter from the Apostle, apostle John to a lady, maybe a literal, actual woman, Maybe a church. One of the significant topics in this letter is the topic of truth. In just 13 short verses, John uses the Greek word aletheia for truth five times. Another theme is that truth must govern love. In fact, MacArthur thinks that this is the primary theme. He says that the main theme of Second John is that truth must always govern the exercise of love. One of the foremost examples of this theme will be found later on in verses nine through 10 um, about bringing false teachers into your home. One commentator says that this is the primary purpose. He says, this then appears to be the primary purpose of this short letter instructing believers not to take any of the false teachers into their homes or provide any other support for their ministry. In any event, it is a significant theme That truth gives us boundaries that we are not permitted to cross. We operate here in this way, but we cannot do these kinds of things. For the meantime, though, we can see that John writes to this lady. He's encouraged to find some of her children walking in the truth. He likewise encourages her, hey, persist in Christian love and in truth. He views his unity with her and with other Christians as centering around truth. He does not find unity in disunity, as is popularly thought today, but he finds unity in unity, in the fact that we have a unified outlook on the truth. Finally, he tells her that true uh, biblical love is obedience to the Lord. In light of these things, I have three points of application. The first one is pursue a deeper love for and commitment to the truth. Resist the pull of the world towards relativism right? The world is pulling us this way. The world is telling us to dismiss or undermine truth. All you need is love. Um, And so what we are called to do as Christians is to pursue a deeper commitment to this. Second, pursue like-mindedness and agreement with fellow believers, right here in this church. Submit your thinking to be scrutinized by scripture. This is the hard part of it. Be humble enough to change your thinking or behavior where you are wrong. Right, You look at Scripture and see discontinuity between your life and Scripture. Guess what? you got to change, not the Bible. Okay, And then encourage others to do the same. Uh, we're growing in like-mindedness. Okay, We're not supposed to be a completely mixed bag of wildly different understandings of everything. I understand, yes, there are going to be differences. And there's going to be things that... I, I get all that, and you know that, and we've talked to it, and I've even... Had friendly little arguments with some of you about these kinds of things and we go back and forth and i get that but on the whole the core truths of christianity we are to be like-minded on pursue that and then finally love one another by walking according to god's commandments do not despise the commands rules laws and statutes of scripture don't despise it it's part of god's goodness for us thank you god for your grace and kindness We pray that you might help us to follow these uh, things that we've read in the letter of 2 John with joy, that you would help us to be more and more united in truth as a church, that the gospel would be that core message that unites us, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that believing in Jesus is what gives to us salvation and eternal life. If there be anyone who does not know Christ, I pray that you'd help them to repent and believe on the Lord and that they too would grow in unity, uh, in truth, with us as a church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.